Let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time of singing and praise that we've had. We thank you for the hymns of the faith that have been handed down to us and how it thrills our soul to sing together like this, to sing praises to you. Thank you for the words that have been penned that uh, give glory to you. We pray that our lives also would reflect this kind of praise. Indeed, you have commanded us to rejoice always. And again, you have said for us to rejoice. So help us to have that spirit of praise throughout our lives. Help us to have that spirit in our education as well. As we transmit the faith to our children, may we have that elan, may we have that spirit of vitality that only you can give. May we have that spirit of gratitude that only you can give, a, a spirit of gratitude that's not like the titillation of the world uh, where there might be a quick high or, or maybe just some sort of distraction or pleasure for the moment, but a, a pleasure, a joy, a blessedness that goes on and on and becomes indeed richer as the years go by. So, Father, I pray that uh, you will help us tonight as we consider this ma matter of how to teach. Uh, help us to be open to your word. Help me to be consistent with uh, your scripture. Uh, help us to learn things here tonight and this week that will make us better educators and better students. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so you're ready for your quiz? Okay, number one. What was the content of Paul's warning in Colossians? You can just give two or three uh, items on that. Uh, list and describe three attributes of God's teaching in the Garden of Eden that are relevant to human teachers. Okay. Who is teaching you or your, uh, your, fa your family or your covenant children? Is it George Lucas? <laughs> is it Steven Spielberg? I don't know if you saw Back to the Future 3, but in there we have Steven Spielberg's New Age philosophy summed up as Jim, wait, it's not Jim, that was in Taxi, as Doc says to Marty, <laughs> talk about the TV generation, <laughs> Marty, the future is what you make it. Okay, isn't that the New Age? Isn't that romanticism that we're going to talk about tonight? Indeed, a triumphal romanticism. Who says that there are no world-class conservative theologians? Of course, this is the conservative New Age theologian that we're talking about here. Well, there's no quiz. Just kidding. I was just reverting back to my Grove City days where I had to teach a bunch of um, nice, polite, freshman, sophomore products of the Sesame Street generation. Okay? They were brought up on Sesame Street, and indeed, they wanted a lot of variety. So you had to do a quiz at the beginning to get the attention, then maybe show a little video, and then uh, have somebody give a report and all these kind of things, as opposed to, to a lecture where you could present an argument point by point by point. Who does that anymore? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't Sesame Street. Maybe it was Mr. Rogers who was really the, the moving force there. You know, he is an ordained um, UP, uh, I mean, PCUSA minister, so maybe that's who we should analyze to understand our generation. Well, no quiz. Let's just consider what the table that I gave you last night as far as putting into place what we're going to do here this evening. Uh, the theme for the week is Christian education, uh, how we can do it, how we can do it better. Last night we talked about the who of Christian education, who is teaching your children. Tonight we'll talk about how he is doing it, what is the process. 
what can we learn, at least in a brief survey here, some biblical pr principles on methodology for teaching. Then tomorrow night we want to take a look at what children are learning in the schools and take a look at our American education in general, which will t bring in some history, some more history from the 19th century. I hope, hope everybody likes history this week. I like it, and I'm sure that Reverend Dennison likes it, and uh, so we're having a good time with that. And then on, on, or on Thursday, we want to make sure to wind it up with a strategy, strategy for how, how we're going to, by God's grace, win this contest, how we can know the reality of Christ in our education. So that's what we're up to. And tonight, what I'd like to talk to you about is how to teach. How to teach, first of all, taking some lessons from the second chapter again of Colossians. Just a few verses here to look at Paul's message, but also some of the pedagogical or teaching practices that we can see in this message that he is giving. And then we're also going to uh, consider uh, Christ's ministry uh, to the world, to the disciples, some attributes of good teaching that we can glean from that. And I want to as well give you a little intellectual sort of mechanism by which to look at education today. I want to contrast two secular points of view in education, romanticism and rationalism. Now, 50 cent words there, we'll unpack those in a little bit and apply them to some recent, maybe a recent movie or two, and also take a look at some romantic poets and see what we can make of what was happening in England in the 19th century and in America in the 19th century in the world of arts and letters. For tonight, the discipline that we'll focus on is literature and language arts. So let's start, first of all, with Colossians chapter 2. Let's return there, reading from the New American tonight, Colossians chapter 2, and I'll start again at verse 1, but we're really going to focus on verses 6 through 8 initially. Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Can everybody hear okay? Is the mic all right? Okay. I'll try not to knock it over tonight. <laughs> for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word. 
Paul begins here with an exhortation to the people, an exhortation to remember the things that they had been taught by Epaphras, the other teacher who was there before him. Again, Paul is acting as sort of a master teacher here, supervising his teacher who was on the scene. He's had a good report, he's pleased, he's happy about the teaching that has been done, and now he's going he's to reinforce what's been done. He's going to give exhortation. And indeed, our teaching should involve exhortation. Not only teaching the Bible, but teaching any of the disciplines should involve exhortation. Our God is the God of all the universe. He's the God of all the disciplines. And in every teaching that you do, in every teaching that you receive, there is some sort of persuasion going on. Hopefully it's good biblical persuasion. And if it's not good biblical persuasion, what must, must it be? Some kind of bad persuasion we have to be on guard for. So we have to look at that, and we have to see that there is enthusiasm in good teaching. So right there we have an initial, a first attribute of good teaching. There should be enthusiasm. The person should be putting forth a, a great effort, be, uh, really out of gratitude toward the Lord. And they should be teaching with a purpose. Perhaps you've heard of the book, Preaching with Purpose. Well, there's teaching with purpose, too. should be thinking about what is the purpose of the teaching. Again, whether it's mathematics or science or literature or history, the teacher must think about the purpose. Further, you'll notice in this passage that there is not only an exhortation, not only great enthusiasm here, but it's a reasoned exhortation. That is, we have an argument here that's referred to. Paul is referring to all that good teaching that Epaphras has done, and he's referring to the teaching that he has done in Colossians. He's referring to chapter 1 about the supremacy of Christ. He's persuading the people to hang on to that, cling to that. No matter what happens, cling to that supremacy of Christ. And then he's alluding to the reasons there, presenting reasonable lessons based on the previous uh, material. And I've already alluded to the TV generation. This is somewhat of a problem today in educational philosophy because we have a generation that is really in many ways a video generation that is a all-at-once generation. The message comes all at once. It's very emotional, sentimental, and it's not really given to a point-by-point reasoned argument, which is the way Paul teaches, giving us this reason, that reason. Here are all the reasons why we should cling to Christ and why we should beware of the bad guys coming in the back door. Well, when we're in a video mode, we talked about this today a little bit at 4 o'clock when we looked at some of the video discs. When, in a, when we are in a video mode, often we're passive spectators, uh, wide open to emotional manipulation by the video. So we have to be very aware of that and realize that, that the Lord has given us a word. He's not given us a picture. He's given us a word that can be thought about and analyzed and presented in a reasonable argument. Watching TV is not like reading an essay where we go point by point. Watching t- when we're watching TV, when we're watching a videotape, we're watching something that's been pre-digested. Somebody has already carefully uh, gone through a script and made it very simple. Uh, I've taken a couple of courses on TV production, and it's amazing how simple the script must be and how short the attention span is of, of, the, uh, of the listener, of, of the observer. So you're taught to do maybe a three-minute script. When you first get in it, you think, three minutes? Well, that's nothing. No, it's an eternity in the the world of TV because the attention goes back and forth so 
so, so fast. And you know that they designed Sesame Street with that in mind as well. Sesame Street, if you'll analyze it critically, changes theme about every 45 seconds or so. Why do they do that? Okay, well, that's because if the youngster turns his head and then comes back, he's lost the theme. So they want to keep him glued to the tube. That's not the way we present arguments, where we go point by point. We have to keep, keep a number of things in mind. So, and in fact, just a plug for the catechism again. We need to have catechism in our Christian education. The catechism is one big grand argument, point by point. It lays the building blocks of our faith. It is crucial to be taught the catechism, to know the catechism, to memorize it. It's a great pedagogy, pedagogy a great part of our heritage. Notice also, too, that content is key in Christianity. As you have received Christ Jesus our Lord, okay, the teaching must emphasize substance as well as style. And when Paul says, as you have received Christ Jesus our Lord, he's not talking about somebody raising their hand at an cru- evangelistic crusade. Okay, he's talking about the whole counsel of God all that he has been teaching and all the references back to the Old Testament scriptures, the whole word of God that's been given to us, the whole counsel of God's word, not just four spiritual laws, not just the mystical experience or bits of secret knowledge, but the whole counsel. Content is important. And you see the effect that this will have then on a biblical teaching style. We will emphasize content. We will emphasize all those so-called boring details. Well, when you get the big picture and somebody's enthusiastic, they're not boring. They're meaningful details. They're crucial to the argument. All the details do matter. And I really praise God for the Reformed faith. My upbringing was in the Methodist church, some fundamentalist independent churches, Baptist churches, and so on. When I finally came around to join the OPC and to be uh, taught in, in Grove City with uh, people like Bob Atwell and others. Uh, it was just a, a wonderful thing. It was really a great improvement. And so I think now is not the time to shrink back from the label reformed. Now is the time to hold it up even higher because I know there are many people like I was looking for a theology with content, with details, with meaningful details. So as... Um, So the supervisor's rating of Epaphras was a gigantic well done. He had taught the details and Paul was pleased with that. Another attribute of good pedagogy, and again that means teaching style, good pedagogy, is to illustrate with metaphor. And in verses 7 and 8, we see some excellent examples of using metaphor. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and and overflowing with gratitude, firmly rooted, and now being built up. Um, We see the metaphor of a tree. Our faith is like a tree, firmly planted. A tree where it's been planted and soil that's been prepared. Uh, It it, it finds its roots. It doesn't blow over with the first wind. Uh, Lynette and I planted a few trees back in Grove City. It was real wet ground, real boggy. Okay, and we didn't quite do it just right. 
you know, with some of them. And uh, the first wind come, came along and wasn't firmly rooted at all, okay, like that. So we really had to work to get stakes out there and strings and twine and all of that and to make sure that it had some time to get firmly rooted. Well, how helpful this metaphor is for us as we think about our faith. We see that it doesn't happen just like that. We see that it takes time, that it is a process. It takes time to become firmly rooted. Again, this is not a quick mystical blessing that we get. This is not just a one decision that we make, but it takes time for all those roots to grow down into the soil. He mixes his metaphor here. Now, our English professors probably tell us not to do that, but the Bible does do that in, a, in two or three different places. And Actually, it's even more effective. It reinforces the meaning, the metaphor. He goes here to talk about our faith as a building. He talks about the foundation being built up, being built. And again, uh, the, a, we mentioned this morning that, uh, uh, Charlie mentioned this morning, that the church is like a building. It's like an edifice. And uh, what a good picture of, of the church that is. And we know that Christ is the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets are the foundation's uh, blocks. And uh, if you've ever seen a building go up, you know the importance of having a good foundation. Most of us have seen that at one time or another. Maybe some of us have even had to tear out some concrete blocks and start over again when it wasn't quite right. We know that the foundation has to be just right. What an apt metaphor to emphasize the importance of teachers, teachers in the church that are under the authority of the church, that are holding fast to the word. First principles have to be right. It has to be plumb. It has to be lined up. There have to be square quarters. A, a metaphor is rich. A metaphor, can, you can walk around a metaphor and look at it from various aspects. And you see the wonderful thing about the Bible that ties into our whole lecture tonight really on uh, uh, literature and on metaphor and teaching style is that it is both metaphor and propositional truth. We have propositions. We have the Ten Commandments. We have Christ's words. Clear commandments. Clear direction. Clear propositions. At the same time, we are given metaphors that help reinforce and confirm our belief. Um, in verse 8, he t uses another metaphor here. See that no one takes you captive. Okay, well, you've probably seen movies before where people have been captured and maybe thrown down into some kind of trap or something or tied up or some hostage in Iran taken captive and well, somebody comes and frees them. That's a very striking metaphor for us, a great word picture. I'm working with a fellow right now uh, who is doing a doctoral dissertation at Westminster East uh, in counseling and the theme of his dissertation is on metaphor in counseling and he wants to work with people in biblical counseling training them to use metaphors and helping them to create metaphors that are biblical study the Bible first and see those metaphors and then come up with certain examples uh, metaphorical language that might help people that are in bondage to sin that the spirit might use to really wake them up. Uh, one example that was given by John Bettler recently at uh, a conference CCF did in Philadelphia uh, was where he was talking about uh, immorality and uh, sexual immorality. And he was talking about uh, you know, the, how the adulteress is described in Proverbs. 
and how her lips are sweet and they drip with honey, but in the end she is bitter as gall. Okay, he said oh, that's a good metaphor that helps us. That helps us to resist temptation by God's grace. He said, well, let's consider this uh, metaphor in some 1990 terms. Okay, her John Bettler likes Pepsi, so he said. Uh, her lips are sweet as Pepsi, Pepsi-flavored lips on the adulteress. But her, her, her lips, after a while, are like razor blades. So you just imagine, you get this picture of, of, of the man being seduced and, and going after the adulteress and, and kissing her and being slashed as he pursues his evil ways. That's a pretty horrible picture. Okay, I hope everybody's supper is well in place. But, but the people that you will work with who uh, are sometimes in this sin are, are just like crazy people. They're like fools. Okay, I know it's not right to leave my wife or to leave my husband, but I just have to. I just love her. I love him. Well, coming forth with a metaphor, the metaphors from Scripture personally, and then maybe something about Pepsi and razor blades, might really pro- help prove the point for this person. It could be part of a well-reasoned argument to that person okay, to help them. Well, I don't think you have to be so graphic with your students in fourth grade or anything like that, but it does illustrate the point that metaphor is important, and metaphor is an important part. Word pictures are important parts of, of teaching. You notice also in verse 7 that Paul says that he's overflowing with gratitude. That he's very, very gratified. And here we have the true joy of learning. Tonight I'll talk a little bit about the romantics, the romanticists who are educators. And they, a lot of times they'll talk about the joy of learning, that uh, unless it's fun and games and play, we can't learn anything. But here's a true joy of learning, um, a, a joy that's based on gratitude, gratitude to the Lord for what he's done. And it's a gratitude that doesn't satiate. It's a gratitude that doesn't, uh, disappear after enjoyment. It just grows and grows and grows. And in a tape on Christian education that I just listened to the other day that um, uh, Steve Butter has some tapes of, uh, Dr. Van Til was talking about the need for Christian education and how it's an outpouring of our gratitude toward the Lord to work on that kingdom enterprise. Um, and Steve does have some of those tapes and we can uh, have a have those available for you if you're interested in those later. So gratitude is another key part of teaching. Another part is to think of teaching as shepherding, discerning the truth, discerning the truth in all the different disciplines. Um, Where Satan fails with violence, he'll move in with stealth and trickery. So a good teacher has to be a shepherd. A good teacher has to be one who's discerning everything that's being taught whether it's in history or English or science or mathematics. Um, We have in verse 8 here a warning. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Now the philosophy that he talks about uh, could be any kind of elaborate system of thought really. It may be bringing in the old ways of the Jews, circumcision and the laws about food and customs and so on. 
But we have elaborate systems of thought today that might be more of a threat to us. As I said before, I have a background in psychology and there are a number of different psychological approaches that seem to work with people. They call them behaviorist and the medical model, gestalt, existentialist, all these 50 cent words. We have to be on our guard for these things. And all of these things are calling for something more than Christ. It's always that same question. Is Christ sufficient? The person may be asking us to be more aesthetic, that is, to be more disciplined. Okay, it's okay, it's fine for you to believe in Christ in the Bible, but you have to have this certain kind of discipline, this legalism, in order to be acceptable. Or they may be telling us that we can be hedonistic, that we, that we can just have our own pleasures. That would be more like the romanticists that we'll talk about in a minute. They may be a slick talker. These video discs that we looked at today by George Lucas are really slick. And whatever message that he implants in those very carefully is going to go out to, to really the youth of our nation starting this fall. It's National Geographic and Lucas Films, and you can bet that a lot are going to be sold, a lot are going to be uh, played in, in the classrooms. So we have to be on our guard, guard for deceptive people, slick talkers. That requires a very perceptive shepherd. The shepherd has to be on duty all the time has to be watching what's coming down the pike. We have to discern every method and fact. And we might have to make sure that it's consistent with biblical principles at every point. Do not be robbed or cheated of your inheritance. Don't sell your birthright for a humanistic stew. That's the message here of, of verse 8. That's, that's the message, to be on our guard that we're not swayed by the tradition of men. Well, let's change our pace a little bit here, change gears and talk a little bit about Jesus and the disciples and some of the, just do a quick survey of some of the important aspects of his teaching with the disciples. There's some very important characteristics of the teaching here. The first thing that I'd point out to you is that Christ's teaching was fruit-oriented. Fruit-oriented. Let's take a look at the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. I'll just read through some of those. The Beatitudes. Indeed, what Christ has given us here is a profile of the graduate of Christian education. And let us never get so swayed by our high SAT scores or the number of kids that go to college that we forget that this truly is the, the goal of Christian education. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do we see that in the kids that are coming out of Christian education? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Are the kids coming out of our Christian education naming the name of Christ at all times and ready for that kind of persecution? Have we prepared them? Have we gotten them ready for those times when they might be persecuted 
And have we prepared them to have an answer? Hopefully they won't be swayed and throw the faith over. I mean, then there'd be no persecution, but then surely we'll have failed. But if persecution comes, will we have prepared them for that? We're getting a little object lesson in that at our church right now. Um, A feminist lesbian abortion clinic where we do some picketing occasionally is suing some of us for picketing. It's lawful picketing. We're against Operation Rescue. Just plain ordinary picketing. And they have trumped up some charges and there's going to be a trial and it's going to cost money and Rutherford Institute's going to defend us and, and all of that. Uh, I remember telling one of the so-called escorts, feminist escorts down at the abortion clinic one time um, when we were being asked why we brought our children along to the pickets. I just said that, well, this is the most important part of their Christian education. We're teaching them how to stand up for what is right and then how to be ready with a good defense. Now we really are going to have to be ready with a good defense. But that's an object lesson. I guess that's a metaphor in action there. And uh, um, hopefully that will will mean a lot to them. I I know already it it does. So that's part of teaching. We want to teach them the Beatitudes. We want to teach them to to realize that they are unworthy servants as, as we are unworthy servants. Luke 17, 1 through 10. Let's remind ourselves of this saying of Jesus what Jesus said. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. Your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Those things, by the way, are crucial things that our Christian graduates should know. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will our kids have that kind of faith? But which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? Okay, And that's pretty much my generation. We want to eat right away. Okay? We want to eat and work later. Okay? And then when we work, we'll work for a little while and then we'll get bored or we'll quit. And we'll... I heard somebody say that one time about the generation of the 60s that, that one of the characteristic flaws of, of the, as a generational flaw is not sticking with things. And maybe we're seeing some of that in our, our churches today. It's important to, to, be, to have, have long-suffering. It's important to delay gratification. Will he say, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. The master must eat first. We must wait on Christ. We must put our desires second. He does not thank the slave before he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And if we ever lose that perspective, then we know that pride is upon us. And we need to pass that on to our children as well, that fruit of the Spirit. 
So this is the desired product. This has to be part of, of Christian education. Another part of Christian education is look for the individual gifts of a child or a youth. Uh, with the fruits, that applies to everybody. Okay. Everybody has to, has to practice the fruits of the Spirit. We have to desire that and work with people. Love, joy, peace, self-control. That applies to everybody. But not everybody has the same gifts. There are different gifts given to people. That's on an individual basis. And in that regard, we have to look at our kids as individuals. We have to look at our students as individuals. And one of the greatest joys for me whenever I counsel with, with young people is to ask them what, what their interest is, what they're, what they're good at, what are their skills. And some just don't have a clue as to the answer to that question. They really thought about that. It's important for us to ask, ask that. And Jesus in his um, uh, teaching tells us about the, uh, how, how we are to be good stewards of the gifts that we're given. How we are given so many talents, maybe three, maybe two, maybe one. But what have we done with those talents? Did we bury them and not enhance them? Or did we put them to use? Did we invest them? Were we good stewards? We need to help our kids learn about that process. And as teachers, we need to be looking for the gifts. So you really do have the one and the many there. Everybody has to work on the fruits, the fruits of the Spirit. But the gifts are individual, one by one. And certainly as elders, we need to be doing that in the church. You know, as we look at our people, we need to say, what gift does this person have? What gift does that person have? And then lead them. That's how the Lord would have us do it. Also, the Lord gives particular assignments to people. Think of the rich young ruler. The Lord could read his heart directly and he knew exactly what question to ask this pietistic young man. And the man at that moment could not come up with the right answer. He could not make the right decision. Nevertheless, the Lord's pedagogy, his teaching was individual in that case. Fruits apply to everybody. The gifts are individual. And the questions are often individual that have to be asked. The teaching must be family-oriented. One of the many reasons that I like this book by Noel Weeks on the Christian school is that he emphasizes the family before going into discussion of the school. We can't duplicate the family. Alan said that tonight. I think he's quite right. The informal character education that goes on in the family is crucial. The Christian school really must be three walls with the fourth wall in the living room. No doubt about it. Now this puts a great obligation on parents as well because we might criticize, and indeed I'll do that next time, I will criticize public schools for becoming uh, the new Messiah, becoming so progressive that they take over all these functions in our society. I'll criticize that. But indeed, it's us in the church and it's us as parents who have failed and allowed that to happen. So I can't point the finger too long. I have to point the finger this way as well. And as parents, we have to make sure that we do, we help our kids with homework, that we go to teachers' conferences. The whole curriculum has to be family-oriented. And I know this is crucial in our churches right now, at least in our church. As an elder, I was involved in interviews that we did with our families just recently. And in those interviews that we did with our uh, families, probably the number one concern was uh, the lack of family time and family devotions. 
We need to do better on that. We need to have that catechism and that regular time because that's what we found out as our session did the, the interviews with, with the people. We need to take care of our parents. We need to be not like the Pharisees who would get out of that obligation to their parents. Again, in Christ's teaching, we see this emphasis on family. It's not an absolute emphasis. There were times when people were to leave mother and father, let the dead bury their dead and so on. Christ was always so balanced. It wasn't the family emphasis that we might have in the Shinto religion over in Japan, where to leave your family or to leave your job is like death. Okay, no, it's a balanced sort of emphasis on, on the family. Christ's ministry also was church-oriented, and our pedagogy should be church-oriented as well. By that I mean that we should respect the authority that the church has over the teacher. The teacher is a Bible-believing Christian, seeking to be consistent in his Christianity, should be in a Bible-believing church, a church that has authority over him. Um, in doing some consulting with a variety of Christian schools in San Diego County, it's really appalling to see the lack of concern for the church. Uh, often principals and teachers don't even belong to a church, any kind of church. That's, you know, a, a tremendous problem today. It's similar to what Charlie was talking about this morning with the, uh, you know, the, the lay people running all these ministries, it's par all these parachurch ministries where there's no respect for the church, for the way God planned it, and the way God set it out in Matthew 18, there's no general respect for the church. And even in CCEF uh, out west, we're concerned about that kind of problem with parachurch. We want to be, Skip and I want to be under a church because we think that that would be more, more biblical uh, in, in our ministry because the, the, the parachurch has, has been increasing so rampantly. There's no respect for the, the church as God laid it out. One other important point about Christ's teaching is the multiple formats that he used, the many different ways that, that he taught. He used parables. He used what we might call found analogies, the woman at the well. Right away he picked up that, well, we could talk about water and, and uh, the living water and so on. Interviews that he did with people. He gave people commands. He wrote in the sand. He spoke to crowds, small groups, one-on-one. -on -one a wide emotional range, range from sadness to anger. All of these were part of Christ's teachings, part of an exemplary pedagogy. It involved patient teaching, patient teaching with people, point by point by point. Again, we really are in a quick-fix society, aren't we? You need something, pick up the phone, dial toll-free, and give them your credit card number, right? Get it right away, whether it's a, a, a new chair or a new car or, or, or whether you're not getting along with your wife and you want that fixed. You know, call this toll-free number for a counseling center or something like that. Okay, Everything's quick, quick fix, but it's superficial. It doesn't work. It takes time. It takes attention to detail to really work things out, especially education. There must be attention to detail. Again, I would commend Week's book to you on the Christian school. Page 63 and following, he goes through a number of aspects of good biblical pedagogy. And those things include the following. Attention to detail as you're teaching. 
really go into the details with the kids. And the kids can relate the details. Hey, kids, what about those baseball cards? Okay, what are all the statistics on those baseball cards? Earned run averages, times at bat. How many cards do you have? What are their names? What teams are they on? Now, they have all those details down pat. See, we really can do it when we want to. I've been toying with the idea of making a baseball card curriculum. I don't know. Maybe sell that to the, some schools or something. Teaching must be step by step. We have to have what's called a mastery learning approach. Learn step one before you go to step two. Now, he who is faithful in small things will be given greater things to do. Step one, step two, step three. It really does take this patient sort of teaching, this building block approach. In the course of this, we need to use a lot of illustrations, examples, metaphors, stories, uh, illustrations. We need to use a lot of repetition. Um, memorization is good. Uh, all these ideas are important for the teacher to keep in mind that you know, not everybody has a photographic memory. Okay, I don't know how well you would have done on that quiz that I gave you at the beginning of the hour, but I probably would not have done that well. I need to hear things a lot of times. I need to see illustrations. I need to see it step by step. And not only so that I can regurgitate it or give it back to you, also so that I can see whether or not I'm convinced of it, see if I'm persuaded of it. And finally, we should include just a comment on discipline, right? Godly discipline. The reasoned rebuke is very important to have in the schoolroom. And then corporal punishment if necessary. And uh, this is probably another place that I'll be in court, or a number of us will be in court one of these days. Uh, corporal punishment is really a no-no. Uh, as you may know, among the social workers. And indeed, again, we've brought it on ourselves. There has been child abuse. There has been neglect. There hasn't been patient teaching. We often have tried to solve problems with a quick, hard swat rather than taking time to, to discuss things or after the swat, read the Bible, pray together, teach the child to ask for forgiveness. This is a crucial thing that must that should happen, not only in families, but also in schools. There must be reconciliation after that discipline. Please remember that. Uh, often people, uh, you know, if they do go as far as to give the spanking, they don't go the, the second mile to, to do the debriefing, the prayer together, the asking for forgiveness, teaching the children in that way. So let's mark that down as another aspect of a biblical method of teaching, that kind of godly discipline. And I'll leave for you to fill out your outline on your free time. Uh, I won't threaten to collect that assignment next time. Uh, for Paul and Timothy, you can look through Paul's uh, teaching. Uh, consider the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, the gifts that are discussed in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 14, and so on. The family orientation that Paul has in 2 Timothy 3. Is he church-oriented? Well, of course. What about all those epistles? and the many different formats, the many different ways that Paul um, uh, rebuked people and, um, con and convicted people and corrected people and trained people in righteousness. Take a look at that. Uh, we don't have time right now. Well, we need to get to these 50-cent words of rationalism and romanticism, so I'm going to use the... I have a tether here. 
kind of like being on the space shuttle, walking around in space here. Um, let's consider these two words, romanticism and rationalism, because Weeks spends some time with spend some time with these in his book. I think it's very important for you to be able to know about these terms and what they mean so that you can be a very educated consumer of education and so that we do not reject one pagan idea for another pagan idea and then miss the biblical way that takes care of both sides of it. So, first of all, rationalism. And both of these ideas are pagan, so I'm going to put them on a spectrum. Over here, I'm going to put Romanticism. Often, they, these seem to be opponents, but really, they have the same undergirding presuppositions and assumptions. Let's uh, see if we can make sense of all this. Remember that uh, the Lord said that there is a narrow way that we walk on, and there are ditches on both sides. Okay, just because uh, we've crawled up out of the ditch of rationalism doesn't mean that we're allowed to fall back over on the other side of the road into the ditch of romanticism, which is a different kind of error. And you need to know about these because educational philosophies that come from Dewey and Piaget and so on uh, fall into one of these two camps. Okay, so let's kind of go over this step by step. Now, what is the pagan answer for how to teach in rationalism because if you're committed to rationalism it will affect how you're going to teach people the basic assumption or belief in rationalism rational has to do with the mind is that man's mind is able to know reality man's mind is able to know reality without any help from anything else and certainly no help from the Bible so the teacher just presents the scientific facts and the theories that will uncover the reality. Well, we've been very successful with science for 300 years or so. We can build bridges. We can put a man on the moon. What's the problem? You just have facts in a textbook and you teach them. What's the problem with that? What's, what's all the, the argument about? Indeed, the Roman Catholics have a view like this, I believe. They see Adam in his sin in the garden as being a wounded being. He was just wounded when he sinned. He didn't die. Okay. So he's just wounded and his mind is still okay. So he can figure things out rationally and that's why you have popes and, and other uh, people who put together traditions outside of the Bible that can be looked at as truth. So there's a rationalism in, in, in the Roman church, in Romanism. We... We heard about rationalistic liberalism in the 19th century today. And this is the same kind of view that we have science and we have scholarship, we have professors that can tell us the truth. End of story. We don't need the Bible. We don't need to assume God. We don't need to be concerned about man as a sinner and the effect that sin has on our mind. Case closed. And one other example of the rationalistic mode was in a movie that came out a couple of years ago called The Dead Poets Society. And there the professors, the old guard, the old professors, I don't know how many of you saw this, but the old guard uh, professors would give their lectures with their yellowed notes that hadn't been revised for 25 years. And they would give their lectures 
standing very stiff and the same kind of facts about the authors. They give the lectures a very lifeless way because after all, why have enthusiasm? Why not just give the facts because that is education? We call that pedantic. Well, there is another ditch to fall into and that's over on the other side, the side of romanticism. Here we say that man's mind creates reality. I mean, because after all, if I were to interview each one of you after this lecture and ask you what you learned from what I said, I am sure there would be a variety of answers given to that. Okay? Don't we all create our reality to some extent? Haven't we all had different past experiences? The romantics really emphasize individual personal experience. They say, how can you rationalists be so sure about things? So here, the teacher just presents environments in which students can create reality. And once again, we can turn to the Roman church, to Romanism, and we see that something mystical like praying to Mary is very irrational. And yet, very smart people do that kind of thing. We have the mystical evangelicalism. And in this movie, again, Dead Poet Society, we have Robin Williams, who's not one of my favorite actors, but uh, he is the rebel. He is the romantic there. Who gets, and I'm not going to get up on top of the table. <laughs> he gets up on top of the table and he reads poetry. Nice, gushy, romantic poetry. And uh, uh, that's, uh, that's an example of the romantic era. Now, what do we make of this as Christians? What do we make of this spectrum? Well, we can have rationalists because God has created the world and there is regularity there. Sun will probably come up tomorrow morning. Does the sun come up or do we go around? Oh, I always get that confused. Okay, but anyway, you know, it'll probably be light about 7 o'clock tomorrow morning, I'd imagine. Pretty soon it's going to get dark. We can count on that. So we can be rationalists, okay? We can figure, our mind can figure that out, whether we're a Christian or a pagan. But as you go on in scholarship or think deeply about the matters of life, you, you come to see that things are not that simple, that there is mystery. There is mystery in life, and that blows apart rationalism because the rationalist has to know about everything to have a good theory, and if there's some mystery, he loses. So a lot of these guys go to India and become gurus because that's over on the other side. Okay, That's the irrationalist. Now, what do we make of that? Well, we do have personal experiences. You know, life is subjective in many ways. And um, uh, interpretation, as with history, we have facts and interpretations. Interpretations are important. The error here is, though, that without a grounding in the Word of God, which is truth, then you can come up with any kind of interpretation, indeed chaos. And so that, that is not, not um, satisfactory either. Now, in education, some educators are rationalists. They just give you the facts. Others are romanticists. And like Piaget and Dewey and so on, they say you have to learn by doing. That unless you experience the potassium in the test tube somehow, you can't understand it. So you've got to experience it somehow. Hopefully you don't eat it. <laughs> but somehow you have to experience it. That's what the romanticists would say. Okay. The rationalist would say, no, you just teach the facts. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And again, neither of these is, is sufficient. Um, what we need is an education that takes into account the personal side of man 
which is the heart, which the Bible does, and also takes into account the fact that we can't have science because God has made a, a world, a universe, that functions in a regular way. That way we are balanced. And we don't have to keep flip-flopping back and forth like the secular scholars do. Well, quickly, let's talk about English a bit, language arts. It's important to know that uh, the problems with illiteracy are not due to an epidemic of dyslexia. Dyslexia is learning disability. You may have heard of that before. And some estimates say, well, maybe 15% of people are dyslexic. No, it's... It's due to a lot of things in our culture. It's due to not teaching kids phonics. It's due to not emphasizing diagramming and grammar. It's due to low-quality literature, all of these sort of things. And these errors that have occurred in American education come out of these two sources. The rationalist says that you should learn to read at a glance, that it should be just clear to you because we have the rules and we'll present the rules to you, the little seven-year-old computer and uh, you should get it and we don't need to be patient with you or take time or teach you the exceptions whether it's English or Greek or some other language you should just know it well not so okay we uh, languages are not regular they do have exceptions there is some mystery in them it does take hard work and on the romanticist side well they just say do it with pictures use the whole word method or have a picture book uh, why worry about all this propositional truth anyway when we know it's just subjective and it really doesn't matter? So uh, do it yourself with, with pictures. What about literature? The Bible certainly is great literature and uh, as well as great tr history. It is true history and it is great literature. There is plot, there is character, there is beginning, middle, and ending. We don't have the chaos of a lot of modern literature that doesn't, does not have those things. What were the three greatest books of the 17th century? Fox's Book of Martyrs, okay, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and of course the Bible. Okay, we talk about our founding fathers. Those are the books that our founding fathers read. Those are the books that were on the coffee tables at, of the time. And they read them. Okay, they didn't take a break for Sesame Street. They, they were, and they were made, they were written to be read as well. The Bible is not only great literature, it's also a critic. The Bible is a critic. For we know from the teaching of the Bible that man must have moral choice in any situation. There's right and wrong. And also, we know we have to take into account human depravity. And whenever literature is produced that doesn't take into account moral choice and doesn't take into account depravity, we have boring literature. I mean, it's not even interesting. It's just plain boring. You have to take into account moral choice and depravity. I have some other do's and don'ts here for English, but maybe that another time. I want to just read you a couple of poems from the Romanticist uh, view and, and uh, talk about them a little bit just to, to end up here so we can have a little uh, time of reading and uh, application of what we learn. The first that I'd like to read to you is The Charge of the Light Brigade. And this is written by Alfred Lord Tennyson, The Charge of the Light Brigade. How many have heard this or know of this? Okay, quite a few, good. Okay, maybe you can sing along with me as I read it. Okay, The Charge of the Light Brigade, Alfred Tennyson. 
Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death, rode the 600, forward the light brigade, charged for the guns, he said, into the valley of death, rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? No, though the soldier knew someone had blundered, theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to right of them, cannon, cannon to left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed with shot and shell. Boldly they rode and well into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the 600. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there, charging an army while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke, Cossack and Russian reeled from the saber strokes, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not, not the 600. Cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon behind them, volleyed and thundered, stormed it with shot and shell, while horse and hero fell. They that had fought so well came through the jaws of death, back from the mouth of hell. All that was left of them, left of 600. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade. Noble 600. Written by the Romanticist poet Alfred Lord Tennyson, who was said by Eliot to exemplify the abundance and variety and competence of that period. Uh, he knew the metrical weight of every word in the English language except scissors. What we see in this, in addition, we see great skill, don't we? Okay. Tennyson is by no means a Christian, uh, but we see great common grace and skill here, and we see a Christian memory. Rollin mentioned the Christian memory the other night. I think that's a good way to put it. This boldness in battle, fighting for what is right. And yet, does the Romanticist really have that faith? No, he was going on a Christian memory. Let me read a couple of things from Whitman, just to close. Let's just take a minute. Um, first of all, then I want to show you how to analyze these with this rationalist romanticist grid. <clears throat> okay, another romanticist, Walt Whitman. Give me the splendid silent sun. Give me the splendid silent sun with all its beams full dazzling. Give me juicy autumnal fruit ripe and red from the orchard. Give me a field where the unmowed grass grows. Give me an arbor. Give me the trellis grape. Give me fresh corn and wheat. Give me serene moving animals teaching content. Give me nights perfectly quiet as on high plateaus west of the Mississippi. And I am looking up at the stars. Give me odorous at sunrise, a garden of beautiful flowers where I can walk undisturbed. Again, it's just beautiful, the writing here. But what about this? What do, what do we see characteristic of the romantic here? I would say self-indulgence. Give me, give me, give me, give me. And in this movie, Dead Poet Society, I think we see that as well in the professor. He wanted the fame with his students. Give me, give me, give me, give me. But what, do, what does the movie end up with? One more Whitman poem. Uh, 
Walt Whitman. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Okay. You know this one. Oh, Captain, my Captain, our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The port is near. The bells I hear. The people all exulting. While follow eyes the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. But, oh, heart, 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 oh, the bleeding drops of red, where on the deck my captain lies, fallen cold and dead. Oh, captain, my captain, rise up and hear the bells. Rise up, for you the flag is flung, for you the bugle trills, for you bouquets and ribbon wreaths, for you the shores are crowding, for you they call, the swaying mass, their eager faces turning. Here, captain, dear father, this arm beneath your head, it is some dream that on the deck you've fallen cold and dead. My captain does not answer. His lips are pale and still. My father does not feel my arm. He has no pulse nor will. The ship is anchored safe and sound. Its voyage closed and done. From fearful trip, the victor ship comes in with object one. Exalt, O shores, and ring, O bells, but I, with mournful tread, Walk the deck my captain lies, fallen cold and dead. And that's where the romantic end, fallen cold and dead. I call it existentialism. We might call it despair. Have you ever been around an existentialist? <laughs> They're not a lot of fun. <laughs> they write papers on things like despair and anxiety and worry and you, you name it. But what you see here is the, the fading of a Christian memory in the 19th century. What else happened in the 1800s? What else happened? Why, why are there no world-class theologians today? Could it be that guys like this affected our education? Could it be that they had just a superficial vision for a while? Could it be that they were self-indulgent and just take, took for granted our Christian culture? and then just spit it out and uh, stepped on their birthright. Thank the Lord that we have Colossians 1 and the supremacy of Christ that rises above all of this. In Christ we have our faith and he is sufficient. And we know that if someone dies, it's not just that they are there cold and dead and no pulse, no will. We praise the Lord. We know that they're with the saints in heaven. And that's the difference between Romanticism and the Christian view. And the rationalist is just as cold and dead itself because it has no heart. So, I hope that's helpful for you in thinking about the different philosophies in education today because you'll see them from both sides. Dewey and Piaget over with the romantics and the rationalists have the scientists and the straightforward approach. We need to be critical of those and not fly from the romantics to the rationalist or from the rationalist to romantics but instead be biblical, to work out a biblical pedagogy as we do our Christian education. And we'll have more on this and the 1800s and other matters educational next time. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, it is good to know that you are there and that you are a ground for our being and that we do not have to be lost in space like the Romantics or set in cement in a lifeless structure of knowledge like the rationalists, but instead we can know your life and we know that it is sufficient. Oh, Lord, forgive us for ever looking to either of these camps for answers that we've had all the time. Forgive us for those times that even for a moment we've sold our birthright for this humanistic pottage. I pray that you will help us to capture a vision for our church and for Christian education this week as we work together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I guess you're dismissed. Any questions, I'll be around for a little bit.